This is a Fubar Radio podcast. For more information, go to fubarradio.com. You're listening to Femi on Fubar Radio. The eyes to the right, 258. The nose to the left, 303. The government cannot keep on ignoring Parliament or ploughing on towards the 29th of March without a coherent plan. She cannot keep on just running down the clock and hoping that something will turn up that will save her day and save her face. So it is surprising that the Prime Minister is not even here to hear the result of this vote. Did you ever see executions? No, no, no. Uh, no, but I saw the head in the bins. In the bins? Yeah. What was that like when you first saw that? These are the heads of captives? Yeah. I was, didn't pay me at all. On the one hand, you don't. You said you didn't regret coming to be part of the caliphate. No, I don't regret it. I've just had an opportunity to speak with President Trump, and he, I would say to all my colleagues, has indicated he's prepared to sign the bill. He will also be issuing a national emergency declaration at the same time. There is word the president will declare a national emergency. I hope he won't. That would be a very wrong thing to do. It's important to note that when the president declares this emergency, first of all, it's not an emergency. What's happening at the border? It's a humanitarian challenge to us. We will review our options. We'll be prepared to respond appropriately to it. Hi, this is Femi. This is The Floor is Yours. Welcome back. I'm here joined by Lucy Pasha, who's a journalist from the HuffPo. Hi, Lucy. Hey. So, this week has been um, another just general shit show from left to start, start to finish. We've had uh, another Brexit vote in, in Parliament where the government lost, but nothing really changed. We had, um, we had the re- possible return of somebody from who joined ISIS, uh, kind of weird that we're about to we're having conversations whether or not we should let somebody who is a British citizen and has no other citizenship enter the UK mm-hmm. um, if they've committed a crime surely that we just put them in prison but we need to figure out whether or not they have done that first what do you think? Well I think it's a case with a lot more nuance than some of um, kind of the right wing commentators would mm. have you believe um, it's highly complicated isn't it? Yeah. I, I think um, one of the main uh, there, uh, there's a lots of lots of points to consider. You know that she was 15 when she left. She was she was a child. She'd obviously been groomed mm. um, and radicalized, but now she's 19. Um, she's showed no remorse. Yeah. Um, uh, but at the same time, she's a British citizen, yeah. and so when any British citizen cr- commits a crime, whether it's here or abroad, mm. you'd expect uh, the UK to take responsibility for that. So. Yeah. I think it's very nuanced, very complicated. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you said, it, other there are thousands of extremely horrible people sitting in our jails in this country. We don't automatically say there's some other country's problem. Well, exactly. And if you 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 can't say, um, you know, that she's no longer British now mm. because she's you know potentially a horrible person. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> you know, I, I she mean, is if, British. if that was the rule, I mean, we'd have got rid of um, uh, <laughs> um, what's his name, Trump's pet. Uh, Oh, what's his name? The, the, the guy from JGMB. Piers Morgan. We've got oh. to, we would have got rid of Piers Morgan a long time ago if that was the rule for not and being others. British. And, and many others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, I think another kind of key consideration to make is for her unborn child, obviously, who, who will be born to a British citizen. Um, and, obviously, careful consideration has to be made for that child's welfare. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of... it's. It's not. A, it's not a cut and dry story. I mean, if you bring if you bring back somebody who has joined ISIS, who has been part of a group that was putting heads into bins, um, then it's pretty clear that there's a security risk there. But at the same time, uh, again, British citizen. Otherwise, we're just dumping our trash across um, across the sea. And there's also a baby to consider, and that baby has committed exactly zero crimes. So the idea that a, a somebody who is a British citizen by by birth um, wouldn't have that right is also something we should question as to mm-hmm. who we are as a country. I think also you have to think. I mean, f- to me, it seems obvious. If this was a if this was a white man who'd been radicalised mm. and who'd ended up on the other side of the world, who'd done something really atrocious, I don't know if we'd be having the same debate. Nope. I don't know if we would be saying like, oh, can we really say? 
this person is still British. Can we can we completely strip them of their nationality? Um, I think that that comes into it as well, which is uncomfortable. And also there's the issue of, of uh, Donald Trump, who has also had some interesting views as to how to keep out people he didn't, he considers to be unfavorable. He want, He's trying to declare a state of a, a state of national emergency in order to get funding for his border wall, which is really, really interesting given that he is trying to basically steal funding from the entire U.S. government in order to gain funding for a wall that he said that Mexico would pay for. Well, exactly. It's the irony of the situation, you know, mm. that... It's, it's going to end up being U.S. taxpayers that yep. that are footing the bill and that are going to be worse off for this ludicrous, ludicrous measure. Um, it's just preposterous, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you could argue that he's making some sort of really bold, progressive statement by saying we're all Mexico in some way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I mean, it, it sets a very dangerous precedent, doesn't it? That that basically, when things don't go your way, you can just declare a state of an emergency. What what difference? Is there between that and just a dictatorship? I'd, I'd like to know. Yeah, well, he, he's been trying to use executive orders to um, uh, basically do whatever he wants. He tried it with the Muslim ban. He tried it with a bunch of other stuff. And now he's joining it with this. Mm-hmm. Um, the in case I wait, the, the case I can't forget. Um, could you tell me about that? Yeah. So we've launched a new series on HuffPost, um, which aims to get hear from the people at the very front line of public service about uh just a really marking case in their career so um nurses doctors firefighters police officers um we've done a lot of reporting around austerity mm. and uh, the impact of um cuts to public services um and uh, the the case i can't the case i can't forget really um wanted to give voice to those people what does that actually look like in practice what does that mean for the the people that are have got you know, much much less staff, um, less funding, less uh, less resources, but still being asked to do the most kind of life changing, um, heroic efforts in their day jobs. Uh, so we've already heard from uh, firefighter Roy Wilshire, who lost two colleagues um, in the Harrow Court fire of 2005. Really, really harrowing story. Really puts into perspective kind of the decisions that go on in those incredible moments that you can't even. I mean, you and I probably couldn't even imagine yeah. what it'd be like to be in a burning building and, and losing colleagues. Um, uh, this week we heard from um, nurse Molly Case about uh, kind of the the holistic care that she offered a patient um, above and beyond kind of medical treatments that actually she realised she just needed to be an ear for him and, she, and, and how important that was in his recovery. Um, so, yeah, stay tuned. I think it'll be a really interesting st- series and I hope it'll it'll really shine a light on the realities, the pressures um, that some of these professions are under um, and fits in kind of uh, well with the kind of the, the coverage that we're, we're doing on austerity at the moment. Well, I mean, it's the uh, kind of the absolute tragedy of right now. One of the reasons why we are in this Brexit mess is because a lot of issues, largely around the NHS as a, as a major example, and, and public services simply weren't being addressed. And... As a result, we have a Brexit that is sucking all the political oxygen out of the air um, and issues regarding actually looking after the people who look after us mm-hmm. are simply being being um, neglected. I mean, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Mike later, who is pushing to fund, raise money for a charity that's looking to make sure that the mental health of doctors is also being taken care of because we're having a crisis of that as well. So mm-hmm. hearing from people that actually look after us is utterly important the pressures that these people are under um i mean one case that it will come later in the series in the next uh, month or so um is from a surgeon who um in his morning amputated a child's leg had to undertake this devastating life-changing surgery to save this child's life within half an hour was back in clinic treating his patients there was no um time for pause there was no, no time to digest kind of what he'd what he'd been through or the impact that, that had had on him mm. no time even to sit down for a cup of tea and and kind of talk about it with a colleague it was straight into clinic so they're being it feels like they're being driven harder than ever before and more more is expected of them than ever before well yeah i mean we saw what we saw what happened 
back when NHS, back when the NHS was something that we thought deserved national airtime, uh, when the, the campaigns and the protests were happening against what Jeremy Hunt was doing, and the absolute strain that was being put on junior doctors, which was just ridiculous, being made to work ridiculous hours, pay freeze, um, very little support. It's just unacceptable. And who were leaving the NHS in droves? Yeah, we, when we need. We, we have need a staffing doctors. crisis. We have a staffing crisis. <laughs> yeah, um, and. Another issue that, that came up this week is, um, I mean, it, it's the 56 Black Men um, uh, campaign, which is basically this campaign to get, uh, which has 56 pictures of black men, all, all wearing hoodies. Um, and it shows the title of um, the, what the job is. So they might be lawyer, um, um, like doctor, that sort of thing. Basically undermining the stereotype about black men in hoodies being dangerous. And it's also being supported by, by, by David Lammies, and which is interesting given that recently I was mistaken for him by, oh, I, by yeah. uh, uh, one of the far-right thugs outside, um, outside Parliament, which is fun. He called me David Lammy. Um, but it is kind of an interesting thing, and it's, it's pretty timely given what happened with um, Liam Neeson uh, mm-hmm. uh, a week and a half ago. Um, that was an interesting co- um, conversation. What's your take on what happened with Liam, ne- Liam Neeson? Oh, it feels like months ago now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so much time has gone on. Um, I think it was uh, gobsmacking, to be mm, honest. Yeah. I couldn't believe it, that he thought, A, that that was an acceptable thing to say mm. <laughs> that it was relevant to bring up mm. and also like a few i think people m- missed the fact that he decided to bring up probably the most traumatic moment in his friend's life mm. just like wantonly like during an interview mm. kind of paraded her personal life in front of everyone thought that was a bit of a dick move um the whole affair was just really shoddy wasn't it and i think um it ties in quite a lot with this ongoing conversation around like, well, you know, the way we used to think isn't the same as how we think now. And mm. like, you know, the lens that we view uh, the past with, um, we shouldn't be putting today's lens on the past, <laughs> you know, because yeah. uh, you had the same case. Oh, you had a, a, a another horrific case this week um, of Bob Frost, the ex-Tory councillor who mm. um, who sent an image of blackface to, to David Lammy. Um, Wonderful. And and his justification for that was, um, you know, this was a screenshot from a BBC program that used to play, and like I was just, sh- I was just sharing, you know, uh, something that's already that you know we that was acceptable perhaps in time times gone by or whatever. What kind of excuses? <laughs> Uh, but, but yeah, yeah. With, with Liam Neeson, I mean, he said that his, his friend got raped when he, was, when he was younger and that he then went out looking for basically any black person to kill mm-hmm. um, as a result. And on that, I, I understood the need for revenge. I got that. He was, he, was infuri- he was furious with what happened to his friend. He wanted to lash out in some way. And in the first interview, he... He goes on about how it was wrong of him to seek violence, but doesn't address the racist element. Mm-hmm. Doesn't address that his entire modus operandi when he was actually going out was saying that any potential black person who um, was aggressive towards him should be treated as if they'd actually committed a rape. Mm-hmm. Which is just the tarring everyone with the same brush, which is just not okay. Because just put yourself in the, in the position, in the shoes of an innocent black person who happened to get killed by the guy from Taken. It's that there was no critical thinking in his argument there, which mm. I thought was astounding. That he he like I mean, when we find ourselves in horrific situations, of course weird things come into your head, don't they? Mm. Like you yeah, anger brings up all kinds of emotions and, and maybe that was the first thing that came to his head. But why didn't the rational side of his brain take over and say like, oh actually that's kind of a racist thing to think. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't, A, do that and B, vocalise it, you know? Um, or, or question himself, like, why actually have I made that assumption? That uh, Why am I tarring all these people with the same brush? Um, yeah, I think that lack of self-awareness and lack of uh, ability to self-reflect in a, um, in a constructive way was quite revealing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, mean I, I understand the sort of point he was making in terms of uh, well, he didn't make the point. I understand the re- the rationale behind it in that if you 
only ever see black people on TV in circumstances where they are the thug in the movie, the criminal, blah, 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 or in some sort of police show, then that's the only experience you've ever had of black people, and that's the only thing you're going to think that they are. And therefore, when you have a crime, you're going to think that they all somehow deserve it. And it's the same thing that we get with um, with, with Muslims or people from, people from the Middle East. The only time we see them on TV is, is on some news report about a terrorist attack, so it's not a surprise that we have all this Islamophobia in it. And so it is a respons- there is a responsibility on the outlets that we watch that we it then twists our perception of certain ethnic and, and religious groups. But he didn't he didn't properly address that, which is again unfortunate and we have to move past this. But one point of progress which I am quite happy about is um, today we've seen the first ever UK-wide school strike and the strike for climate, which is very, very cool. We had um, uh, Greta Thunberg um, speaking uh, to the UN a couple of, um, a few weeks ago, um, basically calling them out, saying, you guys keep talking um, talking all this stuff about climate change, but you never actually put your money where your mouth is. And more importantly, you're not bold enough to say that this isn't just about money, this is about the future of the planet and you need to be bold enough to say that we actually need to um to deal with that yeah i mean how uplifting to see this this strike today mm. i'm so behind them i think it's incredible thank god the children are our future yeah <laughs> <laughs> um because it's so important and i agree with them there's like there's, there's major urgency needed this is the crisis that we're facing long before um you know brexit kind mm. of um, knocks us all out. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be climate change. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's really really great. Um, we had a, an incredible fifteen year old write for us um, this morning. She wrote a blog about uh, about why she was striking, and um, just how uh, how passionate this generation are about that, and how high up on their agenda it is, is really inspiring. Um, I've seen quite a lot of uh, a lot of um, the strikers today saying that they really resent. Uh, people making the assumption that it's just that they want to bunk off school um, mm. when actually they do seem to genuinely care about this. So it's great. It's fantastic. Yeah, very, 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 very cool. I mean, and especially, uh, another, but the other thing is, as you mentioned, Brexit keeps sucking the air out of the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's ironic because these issues, climate change, are the sort of things that don't see borders. Mm-hmm. And so it's the only, it's the sort of thing that you can only really tackle as a community of nations, which is what the EU is. Um, and so leaving that means that any efforts we make in order to address climate change are done locally and don't have as much of an impact. Which is, And so we're, not only is Brexit sucking the oxygen out of the room so we don't address these issues, but it's making us less able to address those issues in the future, mm-hmm. which is just, again, really disappointing. And the, and just the sheer waste of resource, you know, that um, we're, we're plowing this time energy taking up it's kind of crowding all of our public discourse when you know clearly we're not focusing on the real issues the 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 real issues that are killing us right now um i mean air pollution is such a major thing in london like Sadiq khan was talking about it um earlier this week about how you know he's developed adult onset asthma um the the number of number of people who die um because of because of that kind of direct result uh, has massively increased so it just seems uh yeah i find it soul destroying <laughs> yeah uh, it's 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 yeah, I mean, I, I mean, uh, we talked last last week with Matthew Todd about the the utter absence of of leadership in terms of addressing climate change head on. I mean, I and, and I went pretty firm in my dislike of living in London um, because of the. Um, I mean, I have asthma and walk and and riding my bike in this city. I feel like I lose a week of my life every time I pass behind a bus. You probably do. Yeah, it's. <laughs> um, it's something that really needs to be addressed. So it is really great to see um, young people taking control of their futures. This means what we do at Our Future, Our Choice. We're saying that these problems aren't going anywhere. These problems are going to last longer than the next election. Mm-hmm. And so the priority is fixing those things rather than party politics. And what is so interesting what, uh, that you say about um, these problems are going to last past the next election, these are the people that are going to be voting in the next election. You know, mm. they might be 15, 16 now, but in three years' time they won't be. They'll, they'll, be, of, uh, um, they'll be adults you know so 
Uh, and I, th- I really feel, I get the impression that, that this younger generation are looking for a different kind of politics. They're looking for people that are uh, that are actually willing to champion their views and climate change is important to them. Exactly. Uh, Lucy Lucy Pasha-Robinson, thank you very much. You're the deputy editor of the, of the um, deputy blogs editor of Huffington Post. Um, thank you, Femi. Thank you. And we're going to be listening to um, Dr. Mike on a bike, who is the junior doctor who is set off on a bicycle trip around the world, which is incredible. We spoke to him just before he set off uh, last week. Uh, Here you go. Hi, it's Femi, and I'm here with Dr. Mike. Thanks for having me on the show. Pleasure. Um, So you're a junior doctor, and you have concerns over the effect on doctors regarding mental health. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I am a junior doctor. I'm a kind of third-year junior doctor out of university. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm doing this big uh, big bike ride to raise awareness for the kind of increasing pressures putting up, being put on junior doctors at the moment and, and ultimately the, the effect it's having on doctors um, around the country. There's increasing kind of levels of anxiety, depression, and tragically, in, in some cases, um, junior doctors are, are kind of taking their own lives because of their yeah, kind of struggling to to cope with the pressures. So, yeah, that's that's what I'm kind of trying to raise awareness for, really. Um, and and you're you're going to be biking, um, well, a, a fair way from the looks of things. I mean, I once, um, I think my my personal best is about 13 miles back and forth. So 26 miles I once did. Um, nice, nice. But yeah. uh, apparently you're riding a little bit further than that. Where are you riding? Yeah. Yeah, just just a little bit further. So I'm setting off from London um, and cycling around the world. I'm going to be doing 19,000 miles across eight months, um, covering about 100 miles a day. It's the odd day off just to give my my bum a bit of a rest. Okay, I, um, I feel I feel like you might have just shown me up just a little bit, well, but, I'll, yeah, but but keep going, okay. keep going. Yeah, no, <laughs> and then. Um, and then yeah, going through 22 countries. There's a little bit of flying over the, over little bits of water and things mm. like that. But um, yeah, I'm meeting the criteria for cycling around the world. And yeah, it's going to be amazing. I really can't wait. So, I mean, 19,000 miles, 740,000 feet elevation. That's it, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and over um, t- 259 days? Yeah, so just, yeah, just, just it's like eight, eight months. And, uh, yeah, eight months. Um, it's going to be pretty hard going, um, 100 miles a day. And you know, I'm, I'm no athlete. I'm, I'm you know, I've, I've played a bit of sport at school, but by no means am I an athlete. So this is going to be new to me as well. Wow! You're looking to raise how, how much? So, so, so yeah, so looking to raise twenty thousand. When we've already raised about four and a half just before before we kind of I've even set off, which is amazing. Um, just from general um, the members of the public being really kind and, and donating, and we sold um, nearly a, kind of hundred hundred of my um, Doctor Mike on a bike T-shirts mm. with all the proceeds going to charity. So we've raised you know nearly five thousand already, um, and I'm sure once I set off, we'll be able to get some support going and, and get closer to that twenty thousand. How do people like get in touch? How do, how do they how do they monitor what you're doing? How do they how do they donate? So if you went on any social platform and put in Doctor Mike on a bike, you'd find me. So. You can follow it on Instagram, Facebook, and um, my website is www.drmikeonabike.com. Um, and then if you go to that website, you'll find big donate buttons to donate to my Virgin Giving page. Um, and then I've got a tracking device with me that, that is uh, linked up to a website so people can see live where I'll be. Very cool. And um, where, where I'll be camping out. So, yeah, so people can keep up to date 24-7. Well, I'm, I'm very, very much humbled uh, that uh, and every guy like you would be, well, just proving just how resilient and dedicated and the fortitude that doctors have um, and going around the world. Well done and good luck. Oh, well, that's, that's very kind. Thank you very much for having me on the show. And we're back. That was, yeah, as I mentioned, very, very impressive because that guy is cycling around the world to raise awareness for an issue that is really, really just utterly forgotten, um, which is the fact that the very people who look after us are not getting looked after themselves. Um, But that is kind of the problem uh, right now. Um, We don't really talk about the NHS anymore because there's that big B word that keeps floating around. I remember a couple of years ago when that when the NHS was something that you know was important and people used to campaign about it. You used to see doctors protesting in the street, but now uh, we seem to have forgotten about the fact that um, our national health service is kind of an issue. Uh, but here I'm joined by Ria Bernard and also Mike Galsworthy. Um, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, so, I mean, the NHS wasn't doing great before uh, 2016 anyway um 
it was limping from crisis to crisis. Um, it was being underfunded, understaffed. Uh, the doctors themselves were, were being strained. What do you, it, let's pretend Brexit wasn't a thing. What would the NHS need moving forward, Ria? Um, so I think that it's really important if we're talking about the NHS to um, broaden what we're talking about. Mm. I think that when we talk about the NHS currently, we're still talking about that 1948 NHS of mm. doctors and nurses. Actually, it's massively broadened out to have a significant number of specialisms, including allied health professionals. There are 12 of us and we don't actually get talked about very often in the debate around the NHS. Mm. What do I think we need to look at? preventative healthcare and speech and language therapy of whom I, a yeah. profession I belong to um, very much is part of that debate and we need to be looking at things like early intervention not just in medical care but also in supporting children and young people with speech and language and communication needs Yeah, I mean, you're, you're a PhD student in speech and language, speech and language, speech and language. Uh, you haven't worked for the NHS but you um, have worked alongside it and its staff um, and the threat of privatisation, um, I mean, you keep hearing about these terms like PFIs. What's that about? So I think in terms of my profession, mm. privatisation, definitely, there, there's a big threat there. And it's happening across a lot of allied health professions. Mm. So, yes, I was um, up until September last year. I mm. was working in um, quite deprived areas in primary and secondary schools as a speech and language therapist in London. Mm. Um, and I was employed as an independent as part of an independent practice, um, but that is partly because the NHS services in schools are under such strain they're not able to provide the consistency all the time um, of, of support. Um, whereas, and, and that's that's where the issue is coming. Whereas, actually, we should be ploughing resources and mm, money yeah. into speech and language therapy services to support all our children across our mainstream and specialist schools. Well, I mean, if, if, you're, if you've got speaking language issues at that early age, that's going to set you off for life. Um, so, well, so, I mean, utter priority to put funding into that. So the absence of funding for that or the absence of political will to fix that is kind of shameful, really. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we know that there's there's a significant impact on the child mm. and the young person in terms of their educational opportunities and their employment opportunities. But we also know that that is that there's a wider impact on, on their family and community mm. and society. You know, we know that 88% of young unemployed men have speech language communication need. Mm. We know that 60% of young offenders have a speech-language communication need. And we know that 50 to 60% of um, people with mental health have a speech-language communication need. My argument is, if you were to put the funding into early intervention for speech-language therapy, we could potentially offset a lot of those problems which have social and economic implications. It's, again, shameful that we aren't already doing that. <laughs> um, Mike is the founder of Scientists Free EU and also NHS, NHS Against Brexit. Um, but the, the NHS is obviously, uh, as we just mentioned, a far broader issue than, than doctors and nurses. It's also just how, how we treat science as, as a country, how we treat expertise, the funding available. What would you say needs to change, Brexit aside for a second, mm -hmm. in terms of how, how we handle the sciences in this country? Sci oh, so we're moving on from NHS onto science. Well, I, we I was sitting there prepping in my brain <laughs> okay. all this stuff about okay. privatisation. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Okay, let, let's, let's, go, let's go NHS first. Um, Regarding the NHS, actually, fuck it, let's do Brexit. <laughs> the NHS and Brexit, what's yeah. the link? I mean, people, many people voted for Brexit thinking that it would help the NHS. What is your response to them? Right, you've switched it up again. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And Brexit is already hurting the NHS for some key reasons. Yeah. One is finances, because just the fallen pound from the Brexit vote um, put 20% extra prices on everything mm. and so if we get about half our supplies from outside the uk for the nhs that pushes up prices mm. to the tune of about between 500 million and 900 million a year it's been calculated for supplies and then on top of that our nhs compensates brits receiving medical care mm. elsewhere in the eu so that's a cool extra billion a year that mm. it's cost the nhs just from the fallen pound and then there's staffing as we all know eu nurses have been plugging gaps mm. in our workforce for years and years Years, um, by about an extra 7,000 nurses per annum. But since the Brexit vote, that has been decreasing the number of nurses available by about 2,500 nurses per annum. And then doctors have started to follow as well. Mm. And when we've got 12,000 doctor vacancies, over 40,000 nursing vacancies, over 100,000 NHS vacancies overall, mm. then 
the gap is increasing and the pipeline that we used to have to help us out to fill that is going. And then, and this then starts coming into science and stuff, around the NHS, like you were just hearing, there's tons of things going on with regard to community services, uh, whether it be mental health services or social services, mm. but then also research and getting the new technologies and the new drugs and the new medical devices and the new ways of doing things into our NHS to make it a more efficient system. And if we start breaking our frameworks of collaboration that we've built up internationally, then that is another thing that we are already seeing being pulled away from the NHS. Look at the European Medicines Agency, already folded up the flags mm. and on their way out. And that is a massive loss, not just for the for the science itself, mm. but also for all of that science framework which reaches into the NHS and keeps it up to date and advanced and on top of all the challenges well, I mean, that it's facing. The European Medicines Agency was responsible for certifying new, new drugs for the market, market yep. across Europe. Yep. And so given if we're no longer part of that system, uh, which is a risk of the no-deal no Brexit, then it would mean that any big manufacturer that wanted to sell, sell get a new drug certified, they're going to get this certified with the largest market first, and that would be the European yep. market putting the NHS at the back of the queue which means we're, we're going to be, it can take longer to get new drugs available. Is that right? Yeah, so biggest market in the world is mm. the US market. Mm. Um, and then in second place is the EU market, which mm. even though it has more people in it, mm. doesn't consume drugs <laughs> at the same rate as the Yanks managed to get them down. So, okay. um, but if you break out the UK from the EU, mm. then like you just said, it's about largest market first, where mm. you can want to get things approved. And we just move right down the pecking order and mm. our own... Uh, pharmaceutical companies have said so that that um, we will come to your market at a much much later stage. Switzerland and Canada usually take about an extra six months to get uh, new drugs approved, and that is critical for when you're testing new innovative drugs mm. uh, that are associated or you need for rare diseases or that you need for certain cancers. Mm. You know, if you're in hospital waiting on that, waiting for the new drugs to come through, it's it's not good if your country has decided to, <laughs> yeah. to pull you out to a lower place in the ranking system. I've got a close friend with a very rare disease, and, the idea, and so uh, the need for new drugs to combat that is definitely an issue that is very personal to me. So the idea that we be put to the back of the queue in terms of getting access to those new drugs yep. is something that I don't think anybody voted for. And all of this, and all of this is damage that would happen if there was no threat of no deal and we just smoothly moved into Theresa May's deal. We mm. would still be taking all these steps down. Mm. An extra threat that's now being layered on top of all of this is this no deal scenario. Mm. Because we've already spent in the low tens of millions buying up all this extra warehousing and refrigerated warehousing so that we can do stockpiling um, in case of a no deal Brexit. Mm. And then, once we've stockpiled, are we going to distribute um, these medicines well from the stockpiling? And then there are things that you can't stockpile, uh, like some of the diabetes type 1 drugs, mm. but then also medical radioisotopes, which have such a short life that you can't stockpile them, so you have to spend more money on flying them in. Mm. So we are risking a whole load of patients here, as well as throwing away a ton of money. Um, the, uh, we can swear on this, can't we? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a shit ton of money yeah. um, on basically a very insu uh, expensive insurance policy mm. so that we have the option to burn down our own house. Mm. And how and how is how is Brexit affecting the areas of, spe of speech and, and language therapy? I think that one of the biggest things and one of the saddest things about the entire kind of Brexit debate is obviously we have to deal with Brexit in mm. the immediate future. Yeah, we, you yeah. know, we're, we're, the time's running out. Of course, you need to be talking about that. But actually, there is so much wrong with our country in terms of inequality and mm. divide. Yep. And they are not being addressed because we are focusing on Brexit. And in terms of kind of the world of speech and language or, or health, if we kind of broaden it out to healthcare, um. It, it's massive. I mean, you know, the, the schools I was working in, the, the, the issues that families were facing, you know, families who parents might, might be up, have two or three jobs, um, trying to fit in going to the food bank, mm. being able to support their speech and language needs was low down the pile, understandably, because yeah. they had so many challenges, housing, um, employment, I mean, you name them. And I think what is really upsetting is that none of those issues are... Not be, they're not being addressed, um, but they're, they're not even being discussed. It's mm. like they, all the reasons that Brexit has come about in terms of a lot of the outcry of 
in my view of the public yeah. at what happened with the referendum it's it's like it's just been ignored yeah well i mean like I said, these these issues used to be re- regular features on the news, whereas right now it's Brexit, Trump, third story of the day. That's yeah. pretty much all we get. Yeah, um, and, and it, it it really saddens me that this is my country, Britain, in the twenty first century. For God's sake, this mm. is like neo Victorian times, and a lot of these things, as you just said, you know, uh, kicked Brexit off, and now Brexit's come along and blocked up the whole system, and so these things are getting worse. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and also people are getting the exact opposite because many people, decent people who voted for Brexit expected that it would make the NHS better, expected that there would be more public money available for the NHS. <laughs> and one of the things that people, many people don't know is that one of the campaign chairs for Vote Leave that was behind that bus is a guy called Daniel Hanan. And he um, is now part of a group that is calling specifically for American firms to be able to buy up parts of the NHS. So he was he's one of the people that promised more public money and is now pushing for privatization by American companies, which is just utterly just disgusting. Yeah. He'd, al- he'd already been on American TV some years back mm. um, saying, I wouldn't wish the NHS upon anyone when he was trying to advise uh, the American population not to go with um, Obamacare plans and not to have the public option. And in fact, uh, David Cameron tried immediately to disown him after that. But he has a long track record, as do many from the Brexit camp, whether it be Matthew Elliott and the Taxpayers Alliance, uh, whether it be Nigel Farage himself and some of the previous UKIP policy. um, Right across that broad set, there are tons of those voices, um, Douglas Carswell, that were all previously advocating selling off the NHS in one form or another, bringing in more privatisation, opening it up to the free market. That is what they want to do, and Brexit is part of that plan. Uh, and we actually asked um, the we actually asked on, on a Twitter poll, um, and so you can get involved in this conversation because the floor is yours. And tweet at Fubo Radio, call in at zero three three zero two two three zero two hundred, and we asked people what were the biggest issues facing the NHS. And you said, um, under, well, you said uh, the smallest number of you said lack of beds. Um, then the next number, uh, and that was three percent. Then twenty nine percent of you said understaffed. Thirty-one percent said it was privatization, and the winner was the Brexit deal. Hmm. <sighs> I actually did that poll, and I put privatization. Nah. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> because for me, that that's that's been the ongoing, underlying problem with the NHS hmm. that is breaking it, and actually. Brexit is an exacerbating factor for that. In fact, issues one, two, and four um, are all interlinked. The staffing, uh, the Brexit, and the privatisation are all bound into each other. Beds is kind of like a, a separate problem where we've just kind of lost the plot a bit on that. You know, mm. just cutting the number of beds when we actually need more, more yeah. because it's a bottleneck. You know, yeah. it's it's nuts. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, privatisation does seem to be the way things have been going for a fair while and yes. it wasn't it wasn't just under the conservatives because no. i mean it was the introduction of um, private finance initiatives the mm-hmm. pfis and the internal market under mm. new labor mm. uh, both of those were experimented with mm. uh, under new labor and um, then basically when new labor out and the conservatives were back in they were like thank you very much <laughs> for having opened these doors for us mm. and they have been pushing it further ever since and a big change came in 2012 mm. when you had the uh, the, the bill uh, the health and social care uh, reformation bill I, I can't remember its, its name exactly mm. um, but that essentially introduced various mechanisms to help break up the NHS more into sell-offable bits and pieces mm. and this is something that David Cameron when he came in in, 2012, in 2010 had promised would not happen to the NHS he promised there would be no top-down reform of the NHS mm. but then just two years later it was Andrew Lansley who had already cooked up this plan mm-hmm. here's another one who, want, who wants privatization cooked up this plan to start backing away responsibility of the Secretary of State for Health and start opening up the NHS more to commissioning that includes um, package deals available for private companies to start getting more and more involved. And that's the slippery slope that we're on, and that's what the Americans want to get a piece of. They tried to get a piece of that through TTIP, Mm. uh, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership with the EU. The European community shut that right down. You know, this this was where citizen power worked through the European Parliament 
forced a lot of transparency. We were the last country to actually fully insulate our NHS. Mm. And that died. TTIP as a whole died. Mm. But if we pop out of, of the EU and we're lonesome like that and we've got a government that is chomping at the bit to get these companies in mm. and work with these companies, then that's what's going to happen. Oh, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the um, in... A concrete example of that is that when they were negotiating between the EU and the US in that TTIP, um, they had a joint statement which said that nothing can happen in the in the in the negotiations which could limit our ability to nationalise or renationalise public services such as healthcare. Now, if you compare that with um, a, you've got uh, Theresa May refusing to rule out um, selling off parts of the NHS um, to America. You've got Donald Trump saying explicitly, not even hiding it, saying that he plans to use post-Brexit UK-US trade negotiations to make the NHS pay more for drugs so that American companies pay less. And uh, on top of that, you've got what Daniel Hanan's doing with actually pushing for that. So our NHS is significantly more exposed to privatisation as a result of, of, the, of the Brexit that was voted for largely to protect it from privatisation. It is just not okay. We've got yeah, a tweet from... all all uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this was, just really quickly... Mm. I think it was in 2015 that Aaron Banks uh, got work done to see what he would need to do in order to tip a population for Brexit. And he was told you need four million Labour voters on your side in order to do that. Mm. So there was a very deliberate plan from early on to um, pick up some issues that were really important to the left Mm. and get them on board that away. And so the NHS became a real target, even though for most Brexiteers, and Dominic Cummings, who ran the Vote Leave campaign, can tell you this, they didn't want to go near talking about the NHS. Mm. It was like, no, if you want to win this thing, we need to steal that Labour vote. And that's what they went for completely disingenuously. But that's what what, what they've done. I mean, they they know that the NHS is right at the core of our national identity. It's the thing that we care the most about. It's the thing that says we care enough about each other to contribute a little bit to make sure that everyone else is okay. Yeah. And so that's why, they, that's why they chose to say that there'd be £350 million pounds, uh, pounds a week to the, to the NHS. Um, but right, and right now, they're even, they're even still going where they're saying that there's be a direct dividend, which just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. They're saying that they'll put another £20, 20 billion into the, into, the, into the budget that they're promising to do over the next 10 years, mm-hmm. which is utter bullshit because... Um, uh, not only is there going to be significant economic damage as a result of Brexit, which means that there'll be less money, but also people often look at the money that we send to the EU as, as this money that just goes away and we never get anything back. A, yeah. um, it, it allows us to be part of a system which makes trade cheaper, which means we save money well well over what we, what we give out. And then we just do the maths. Right now, the UK is part of uh, part of the EU, and so there are forty agencies across the EU which perform governmental functions, ranging from um, chemical regulation, the European Medicines Agency, which just left London, uh, financial regulations, the European uh, Fundamental Rights Agency, which I used to work at. Now, the cost for those agencies is split among twenty eight countries. If we leave the if we leave the EU and we have to do those functions ourselves, the cost for that goes on the UK taxpayer alone. We are talking about paying more, and, and, a, and a concrete example is that when they. Uh, with the Galileo project, the GPS system that we were working on as the EU, uh, again with the sciences, um, and the cost that was the, for that was about eight billion to produce that to produce that system, and. Once we've, and the plan is to leave that system because we're no longer part of the EU. In fact, we um, emphasise that only EU members could be able to actually use that system. And the cost for us to make our own system, which we plan to do, is five billion. So when you do the maths, eight billion split among twenty-eight countries, or five billion on one country. Guess who's paying more? So our NHS will deeply suffer. Um, uh, and and you Rhea, you've noted that your area is getting less and less funding in terms of um, uh, uh, physiotherapy. Uh, yes, in terms of speech and language therapy, yeah. absolutely. Um, so in terms of what's going on with with funding and provision, a, a really big um, kind of battle, and it is noted in the new ten year long term plan. Mm. Um, although I would like to argue and stress, mm. uh, it's not really got a very significant. We've not got a very significant role in in that plan, mm. um, even though we should do. Um, is that Speech and language therapy is massively underfinanced. So what you're seeing is highly experienced therapy posts, mm. which are then freezing and no one's replacing them. And so then you're getting new people come up who are developing as specialists, mm. but then they're not, they've got no one to learn from equally because mm. we're always learning. That's what yeah. professionals do. Yeah. Um, and, and so 
we've got a, a huge demand, a significant demand in terms of children and adults, because I'm focusing on children because mm. that's my experience. Um, we've actually got the spe- a lot of speech and language therapists, um, mm. but we don't have the jobs. And yeah. so what, what are you, you going to do? The supply and demand is, is crazy. Um, mm. Add on to the fact that if we think about social deprivation, so we've talked about around 10% of children have speech and language communication needs, mm. right? Children and young people. In socially disadvantaged areas, that's 50%. So that is, the link is huge. Yep. Um, I mean, I know myself, I was working in schools two days a week. I had caseloads of 45 children. Mm. I mean, it, can yeah. you imagine trying yeah. to cover that? And they, they range from language delays and sort of speech sound difficulties and stammers mm. right through to kind of more complex needs associated with autism, ADHD um, and various other needs, all mm. being dealt with in a mainstream school. And it's, it's a, just a vicious circle because yeah. um, you have people from deprived areas who have these issues that aren't being addressed because they're in de- deprived areas and those issues then set them back for life, which then mean they, that those areas stay deprived and they can never get out of them because they're held back. And it Absolutely. costs all society. Mm. It costs all society. Mm. It's a vicious circle for all of us, whereas we should have a virtuous circle. This is why I so object the term tax and spend <laughs> as if you're like you've spent it on something and then it's gone mm. it's it's no it's invest 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 yes. and then pay back and that's the virtuous circle that we need to get generated i mean because mm-hmm. the problem that you highlight works right across oh, health yeah. cancer for example will kill one in three of us mm. how much do we invest in it per head per annum mm. from charities five quid from government taxation two pounds seventy Mm-hmm. So if you think yeah. about how much you spend on a pack of peanuts yeah. or family, you like popcorn, don't yeah, you? Yeah. You like your bags of popcorn <laughs> or, like, or beers or, or going yeah. out or anything. Compare that to how much that you are personally investing in a cure for cancer, which has got a, like a one third chance of killing yeah. you. It is nuts, the lack of underinvestment. Yeah. And that's cancer. That's a big one in terms of all the childhood development problems mm-hmm. that you're highlighting. If you don't set that out early on, that screws up the rest of your life. That's a massive burden on your family. It is a burden on your community, on your school, on any employer that you work yeah. with, and on society as a whole. Yeah. Um, we've got a couple of te- uh, tw- tweets here from uh, which said that to anyone saying private, and this is from CP Kynes, um uh, to anyone saying privatisation, you've clearly never worked in the NHS um, if you think that that's the biggest issue. Try having no beds, no nurses, no docs, no, no longer um, an attractive career, underfunding or over-demand, idiotic demands of an ageing population, and then you can get to privatisation. But, I mean, no doctors, no beds, no nurses. I mean, these are problems that are linked to a lack of funding. So, it's yep. again, yep. it's all it's all tied together. It's, it's about health. system efficiency. Mm-hmm. If you uh, want to no, deal with all of those, you need efficiency and you need investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. No, sorry. Yeah. I was yeah. just... Mm-hmm. I, 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 it, I'm going to sound like a broken record by the end of this, but no allied health as well. It mm-hmm. is so in, incredibly important. Yes, absolutely. Um, doctors and nurses do an excellent job. I am not... In no way am I saying they don't. Mm. I'm saying that allied health work hand in hand. When when somebody has a stroke, mm. they go into hospital, they are treated by a doctor, they're mm. treated by a nurse. They are also treated for their communication and swallowing needs if needed by a speech and language therapist. Mm. They're also treated by a physiotherapist if they need mobility support. Mm. They're also supported by a dietitian if they need support in terms of a change or modification to their diet. Uh, they're also supported in terms of social care when they're transitioned home. You know, there's there's it's very, very important that when we're talking about the lack of resources Don't just talk about we're talking nursing. about everyone yeah. Yeah. it's very yeah. yeah this thing because the burden is huge i mean it really is huge i completely agree but also we do tend to focus on hospitals mm. and what yeah. about as you said earlier community services and that's where i would come in i would be under kind of a community service yeah. um yeah. into into schools um, and and we were just talking about that but but preventative healthcare and i'm kind of going on a mm. tangent here but just to give you some sort of solid ideas around what you could do if you were to invest in these services, if we can get to children before they're five, they have the high, the most optimal opportunity of catching up with their peers. Absolutely. We know that children at five, their vocabulary levels will help to predict their ongoing literacy skills yep. later. Um, so. Why does it, it, to me, it's just like a no-brainer, yeah. you know, put the money in. We were talking about this before coming in because yes. we, we've both got sort of shared past in developmental psychology and, <laughs> and the genetics of that and how the genetics interact with the environment. 
if you can get kids early and make sure that they've got that healthy, stable environment early on, um, it makes it makes yeah. an incredible difference. And not to invest in that is really to set up yourself for a whole uh, social, emotional, and yes. financial drain for for the rest of their existence. One, once kids get behind, then also the behavioural problems start kicking yeah. in yeah. as well. I mean, um, what was mentioned in that tweet was also um, aging population, which doesn't have anything to do with privatisation. But I mean, how do you yeah, tackle uh, yeah. how do you tackle an aging population? Do you simply just go to a Durex factory with a hole puncher? Uh, <laughs> maybe he's mixing it up now uh, well if you, if you were to do that you, you'd have to wait a good sort of 18 20 years for for people to start coming online in terms of resource i personally would go for um uh, immigration myself as as a stop gap a better training up mm. of uh staff that um of jobs that, that you need from your home base as well you need both of those actually mm. um but the key challenge with um, the aging population is um, uh, the, the technologies around it, the understanding of the individual, the ability to link um, hospital care with transport and, and home care mm -hmm. and it's a whole system of care and this is where the NHS starts getting really messy mm -hmm. because it's not accident and emergency anymore um, it's not um, it's actually designing programs for people's lives that maximize taking care of them and the costing is really difficult because with the NHS it's all publicly funded but when it comes down to actually end of life care then you've got a whole mix of uh, financial demands some on the state mm. some on the individuals and it is not clear where one ends and the other begins. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. And I think that something else that um, we, we could touch upon here in terms of um, the ageing population is research. So research is absolutely fundamental in tackling um, the neurodegenerative diseases that we're seeing increasing, mm. partly because we're living longer. Yep. So the dementias, yep. multiple sclerosis, um, most neuron disease, etc. Um, and actually something which is important in terms of the EU is funding. So funding for research uh, I, I am funded by the EU for my PhD. They partly oh, cool. fund me. Mm. So um, that's quite important. Um, and, and I think that, that if we're going to try to tackle, and, and it's a very long-term uh, sort of solution, but if we are going to tackle it, we do need to be pouring money into research, yeah. into some of those hot potatoes, dementia being a significant one, which does get a lot of attention, but there are other neurodevelopmental, uh, sorry, neurodegenerative uh, disorders that could get a lot more attention, I think. Yeah. And Mike's about to go off on Horizon. What? As in, as in, uh, in, in relation to funding. Oh, right. Funding. Okay. Yeah. Horizon <laughs> 2020. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, 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 EU, the EU science program. Yeah. So the point is um, that when we all put money together into the same pot, mm. then suddenly you have this facilitation for 10, 15, 18 nation studies. Yeah. And all you have to do is pick. A big pick and mix, put together your dream team, anyone you want to work with across Europe, across the associated countries that buy in, and then sometimes maybe further afield, put together that dream team mm. and make one application, just <laughs> one application for the grant. Mm. Like if you wanted to put together uh, a team of 10 nations and you didn't have that common pot mm -hmm. and you've all got a 20% chance of getting a grant, yeah. well, 20% times 20%, or like 0.2 times 0.2 <laughs> times 0.2, <laughs> yeah. okay, it ain't happening and yeah. that's why it doesn't really happen elsewhere in the world mm -hmm. and on top of this you actually see the results come good from having such large-scale programs we know that when British institutions collaborate with international institutions you get 40% more uh, impact uh, than you do when you just have British only institutions mm. putting out those papers and then on top of that by having that kind of framework, we attract people from all over the world that want to come to the UK to, to, to lead uh, grand-scale uh, EU programmes. So there's so much that you can do when you're looking for genes of small effect, when you're looking for particles of small size, when you're trying to see further into the universe, you need the bigger, bigger studies in order to get that more refined granularity. And this is what we're doing in Europe at the moment par excellence. We have surpassed America in many ways just by sticking together as an ever-growing team. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, we uh, we are the biggest re recipient of, 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 of 
scientific funding from from the EU, uh, which is again money we get back. Um, and also toe to toe with Germany. Sometimes we're ahead, sometimes it's them. You know, it's been a friendly battle until recently. Until <laughs> <laughs> <So> recently, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, n- not because it's become unfriendly, yeah. just because we've slipped down the scale now. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. Um, but I mean, Theresa May keeps saying that there'll be, I mean, with a ten-year plan, that there'll be more funding available. Um, to what extent do you believe this? More funding available for sciences, more funding for the NHS. Theresa May is totally reliable. Yeah, she never makes promises <laughs> which she then rips up. Yeah, believe in her. Yeah, for sure. No. Um, even if the UK puts in more money unilaterally. Mm. If you go through with Brexit, ripping us out from this big engine that we were running and driving, mm. one, that, a- that added return on investment that you have from leading these big projects goes. The other programs that you have whereby you can attract talent from all over the world to the European research grant programs in the UK, that prestigious thing, you know, we lose, that means we're not attracting in the talent. General disruption means that if you've got innovative companies, large and small, leaving, then that means that you attract less talent in. And then also, if you get hostile with your neighboring countries, you don't look like a sweet place for, you know, a Polish researcher or an Italian researcher to come and bring up their kids in. And that is what is happening now. Yeah. So um, it's not just about we will put more money in and anyone coming here will be grateful for it. Mm. It is more complex than that. In science, it is about teamwork, international teamworks um, and a, a national ethos that supports that. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mentioned before how I've got a close f- friend who um, has a rare, rare disease and there just simply wouldn't be the funding for it if uh, if it was just the UK because if you've got a very very rare disease you're not going to get the funding for that in your country whereas if you if you get the sample size from across Europe yep. that when you have enough people that make it worth developing a drug to address that problem then you're going to get more investment and it's going to be a viable thing to create that drug and solve yep. that problem. So three levels to this: one is exactly the one that you've said, mm. which is scaling up to do the research into it. Mm. The other one is the market for the drugs in order to treat these rare diseases Mm. through the European Medicines Agency we had a dedicated fund which was for orphan drug development Mm. so that you can approve them on a pan-European scale and actually make those drugs viable otherwise these drugs wouldn't be developed and then thirdly when it comes to expertise for support networks for individual patients oftentimes there are kids in the UK that The doctors don't know what's wrong with them. They don't know what's wrong with them. But we've got a pan-European network. So sometimes a kid with a rare disease, undiagnosed in in Stoke or in Southend-on-Sea, actually has it diagnosed by someone in Turin or Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. And that's how we work together. And then there are the patient frameworks, the patient support groups, which are pan-European as well. Mm. This is what it means to work together. Yeah. Isn't it beautiful <laughs> yeah. what we have built well, so under the radar we, 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 in we, science, in health, over 40 years, taking care of each yeah. other? It's almost as if the spirit of international teamwork has been, kind of been hurt in the last couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, Theresa May is promising with this 10-year plan that she's going to be addressing the issues that were previously neglected, such as mental health, learning disabilities, autism. But, I mean... I think I guess that would be my, my final question to you. What would be, if, you, if, if we put Brexit out of the way, what is the first thing that you say you would say we needed to just do in, immediately in terms of, of mental health, oh, in terms of the NHS and healthcare as, as a final thought? I think that um, if we kind of put it into the context of this 10-year plan, mm-hmm. something that I felt was glaring out at me was mm-hmm. that Theresa May saying, you know, this plan is going to address all the issues and it's, we're going to provide funding. But the, there's a great big gaping hole. They don't address in this plan early intervention mm. in terms of children. So early years intervention. So I'm not talking about early intervention for um, uh, things like cancer. And that's absolutely fundamental. Mm. I'm so pleased to see that in there. But it doesn't actually talk about early years a great deal. It talks about, um, which is very welcome, supporting um, expectant mothers Mm. in terms of um, maternity care. And that's very important. But it doesn't talk about um, how we're going to support um, early years. And so I suppose what I would say is that that is something that is a a massive hole in it. Um, And we, we need to be pushing money. And we've talked about it quite a lot in terms of prevention. The mental health angle... I'm glad to see there's more money in, in it. And I think that, that 
you know, I wanted to kind of share this because I think it's really important to understand. But so CAMS, Children and Adolescent Mental Health Services, mm. um, are a fantastic service, but they are under incredible strain to the extent that we, I, I had a, um, a situation a couple of years ago where a child um, tried to jump out of a, a, a window um, and we wanted an emergency mm. referral, a child. When mm. we made that referral, we were told it's an emergency. You can, we, we'll see, see that child in uh, 40 weeks. And I was like, 14, mm. one four. And they said, no, 40, four zero. So yes, the, long, the 10 year plan is addressing that. That's really important. But actually that child was a lot older. If we'd have potentially got there earlier, mm. would that have happened? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's just unforgivable that, <laughs> that, um, that uh, we're not doing the thing. The first responsibility of government is to look after its people. And we're clearly failing in that. Absolutely. Um, I guess final thoughts, final thoughts from you, Mike? Yeah, I would agree. Prevention is key. Matt Hancock has been saying that recently, Mm. just a couple of years after this government stripped out all of the responsibility for prevention, put it on local councils and cut their budget. Mm -hmm. They're now saying we need more investment in prevention. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Um, So prevention, definitely. Joined up services, definitely. Investing in all of the technology that makes that more efficient. Mm. And I would also be stripping out privatisation for the very fundamental reason that it is wasteful in order to have multiple tenders all over the place um, with uh, profiteering as a motive for many entities. Mm. That is something that, that needs to be redressed. So those three. That guys, thank you very much. I think the, the takeaway is it's good if we, it's better if we save lives. I think that's um, yes. a, a good lesson to learn. Helping uh, each other is not just a nice thing to do; it's kind of important. <laughs> good to know. <laughs> <laughs> this has been the floor is yours. It will be available on Spotify as well. We will see you next week. Thank you very much, Daria Bernard and Mike Galsworthy. See you next Cheers. week. Thanks, Thanks very much. You've been listening to a Fubar Radio podcast. For more information, go to fubarradio.com.